This audio podcast is from the River Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope God uses it to encourage and grow your relationship with Christ. For more information about the River Church, visit us online at theriverdfw.com or facebook.com backslash theriverdfw. Good morning, River Church. I'm excited you guys are here today. Um, I'm excited that uh, this is our last week of the summer series. Uh, I shouldn't say I'm excited. I guess I'm a little bit sad that's the last week of the summer series. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. Um, if you have not gotten caught up, you can jump on uh, podcast and caught up on the podcast or our Facebook page. Um, I know I've enjoyed the chance to get to speak to you guys. I know Joel has. And I think probably the best thing that's happened is that our pastor, Michael, has gotten a chance to kind of just come and, and be a member of the church and, and take a break. I always give him a hard time and tell him he works one day a week. Um, so I was like, I don't know why you're so busy. You only work one day a week. But uh, it's tough to do this, so I'm excited, um, grateful that he got to have a, a time off, and, and we were able to walk through this kind of in a, uh, a, a fitting thing. The title of this week's sermon is called The Return. Um, just like we're returning to the normalcy of Michael preaching to us, um, there's a return at the end of every summer. Um, like I told you all the last time I preached, uh, we, we we sat down, Joel, Mike, and I, a couple months ago, and we walked through every week of, of what we wanted to preach about, and we talked about these different topics. And I drew the card of having to close it all out and have the last sermon, and, and this this name kind of stuck with me, the return. At the end of every summer, we have a return, don't we? Um, if you're a student, you're going back to school. If you're a teacher, you're going back to school. Sorry, guys. Right? Um, and if you are an adult like me and you realize there is no summer and you just work all the time, hopefully you're able to take some time off and then there's a return back. And even if you didn't, there is still a return to normalcy, right? Our kids are going back to school. Life is, is moving. God is changing the seasons in our life, and there's a return. Um, so this is called the return. Um, and I'm excited. If you have your Bibles today, we're going to be in, in Mark chapter 10. Uh, you can kind of uh, turn it there. Um, I'm very excited. I get to preach. Uh, <laughs> Mike and Joel gave me a hard time last week because I said, I'm really excited. I get to, I get to preach out of the Bible this week. And they kind of looked at me and kind of turned their head sideways, and they're like, well, we always preach out of the Bible. Um, but if you were here two weeks ago, I kind of gave my testimony, and I was bouncing around different, different spots in the Bible. Um, but this one is, is a story about Jesus, and I'm reading a book by John Eldridge called The Beautiful Outlaw, and it's, it's great because it dives into the personality of Jesus. Um, but this is, this is about Jesus, and it's a walk through uh, this moment he had with this man and this opportunity he gave this man to return to him. We can kind of see what what choice the man made and what we can gain from it, what we can pull from it. At this point in Jesus' life, he's pretty deep into his ministry. Um, a couple chapters before this, he had fed the five thousand. So people, his the 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 name of of Jesus is growing, it's spreading um, everywhere he goes. He has thousands, literally thousands of people that will show up. Um, basically, three things: either they want to be healed from him, they have they have sick, they have something wrong, they want to be healed. Or they think he's the Messiah, and they want to learn from him. Or maybe they think he's the next coming king, he's going to overthrow Rome. Or they think he's a fake. But no matter what they think about him, they're coming to see him. They're coming to see him either way. So here we are, um, and we'll pick it up in, in, in verse 17 of, of Mark, if you have it. Here it goes. As Jesus started in his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, and you shall not defraud. 
and honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Okay, so kind of a lot to unpack here. It's, it's a quick little snippet in the Bible. And, and if we're guilty, if you're like me, I kind of get guilty of when I read God's word, sometimes I read it like I read a textbook. Like I'm going to learn something from this. I'm going to read it and I'm going to learn something, but I'm not reading it with a whole lot of color. You know what I mean? In that book, The, the Beautiful Outlaw, John Eldridge talks about how we miss the personality of Jesus by doing that. We miss who he was. We, we see him as a two-dimensional thing. He says, you can really like Abraham Lincoln. I got to go to, a couple weeks ago, I got to go to D.C. for work, and I got to go see the Abraham Lincoln Monument, which was pretty cool. Um, I can really like Abraham Lincoln, but I'll never really be able to love him because I don't know who he was. I can read his quotes, but he said, if you read the Bible, you can see Jesus' personality. You can see who Jesus was, and you can love him. And so I'm going to give a little, I'm going to give a little color to the story. I'm going to tell you all the story again, totally in my own words. I'm going to take some liberties here. I'm going to give you color, make it a color analyst thing, right? But I want you all to hear it and see if it makes a difference, all right? So I'll set the scene. The rich man is up in his big house above the city. He's had the house for years. It's been his family for generations. And from his porch, he looks down, he sees a huge crowd of people moving through the streets of the city. Thousands of people. And he sees in front of them, people are lining the streets. And he knows this has to be the one they call Jesus. This has to be the one that everybody's been talking about. Well, this man's been a Jew his whole life. He's been a good Jew. So he says, I need to go talk to this teacher. I need to see who this guy is and see if he's the real deal. So he hurries down the hill to where the crowd's coming. He turns a corner and he, he gets up right against the people and he can see Jesus for the first time. And Jesus is walking and he's smiling. He's reaching out and touching the people's hands as, as, they, as he walks by. He's laughing. He's looking at the little kids as they run alongside him. He's talking to them. His disciples are not that way. His disciples are behind him with their arms out like the secret service, like get, don't, I mean, they're trying to keep Jesus from being swallowed up, right? Back up, back up, give him room, give him room. But Jesus isn't bothered by any of this. He's smiling, he's laughing. So the rich man sees an opportunity, he kind of squeezes in, and all of a sudden he stumbles into the inner circle. Somehow he gets through everybody, through the disciples, and he realizes it about the same time Peter does. And Peter tries to grab his shoulder, and he ducks him out and stumbles in front of Jesus. And in his excitement, he stutters out the first thing that comes to his mind. He says, teacher, teacher, what must I do to, to gain eternal life? And Jesus keeps walking and doesn't answer for a second. He's still touching the fingertips of people who are sick. He's still talking to little kids and laughing. And the rich man thinks, he's not going to answer me. Or maybe he didn't hear me. And about the time he's about to repeat himself, Jesus starts to talk. And he says, well, you know, you know the commandments. You know what the Bible says, or you know what the Word says. He rattles off a few commandments to him. And as he names these commandments, the man's getting more and more excited, and he's being more and more justified, and he can't contain it. And he's like, yes, yes, I've done all of these things, so I'm, I'm good, right? I'm good. And then for the first time, Jesus stops and looks at him, and everybody goes quiet. The crowd stop. Everybody wants to hear what Jesus is going to say. And the man's heart drops because the look of Jesus is something that changes him and exposes him. And it, it, it's not a harsh look, but it's a look that says, I know you. And it makes him feel weak in the knees. 
And all of his guard that he had up from years of wealth and experience is gone as Jesus looks at him. And Jesus looks at him for a long second and says, I'll tell you what, do one more thing for me. Just one more. Sell everything you have and then come. Give it to the poor and then come and be with me and join us as we change the world. It's a real offer. It's authentic. Even his disciples are like, what did he just say? He, he's letting this guy come into our group? We don't even know who this guy is. Everyone is waiting for the response. But the man stands there, and words won't come out. His lip starts to quiver. How can he give up everything he has? That house... That industry that he has has been with his father, his father's father, his father's fathers. How can he give all of that up? What about his future? How's he going to pay for things? What about his family? What's he going to do? His lip starts to quiver. Tears start to come to his eyes. He can't, he just can't talk. Jesus looks at him and holds his gaze twinge of disappointment, Jesus turns and keeps on walking. And the rich man stands still, staring at the ground right where Jesus stood. People file by him, following Jesus, until he's the only one left. He's staring at the ground. He looks one more time over his shoulder where Jesus just went, tears now flowing down his face. He turns and he starts up the hill to his giant house, which now feels so much more alone. Now, when I put it that way, can't you relate to it? Don't you feel for not only that man, but you feel for Jesus? I do. Because here's the deal. Jesus is standing in front of us every day, right now, and asking the same question. What would you give up for me? What would you give up? For me, or may, maybe more, more hard for us to face, what could you not give up for me? So there's a couple points I want us to pull from this, right? A couple things that we can learn from Jesus. And point one is this. A relationship with Christ is never something that can be earned. Never. And praise God for that. We can't earn it. If you look at that man's response in verse 17, his first question is, what must I do to gain eternal life? You see, he thinks, well, I can just check some boxes. I can just do some things. And if I do enough things, that God will love me and I will purchase my ticket to heaven. I just got to do, do the right things in the right order, in the right way, and I'm in. And this is something that Jesus didn't like about the Pharisees. If, if you remember from, from a lot of his teachings, he, he was always arguing with them over the Sabbath, right? Arguing with them over the, the, the laws and the rituals that they carried. He's like, this doesn't matter. The, what matters is God. What matters is the heart of God. Y'all are so focused on these checkpoints. He's thinking that if he checks the box, somehow he's going to do the right thing. The Apostle Paul um, wrote most of the New Testament. Um, one of my favorite people in the Bible, an awesome man, super smart, super educated and he wrote, in, uh, in Philippians, he wrote about being good enough for God. Let me read it to you. It's Philippians 3, 3 through 6, or 4 through 6, actually. If anyone else 
I'm sorry, though I myself has, have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And look at this last part. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What he's saying is, it, it didn't matter. I could do all the things right. I was, I was the perfect Jew. I was the perfect Hebrew. I was the perfect Pharisee. And none of it mattered to God. The only thing that mattered to God was my heart. That's all that mattered to God. And we do that today, don't we? We think, well, if I can just give enough money to the church, if I can just come on Sundays and sit down and fill a seat, then one day when I die, God's going to say, hey, I saw you at church, bud. You're in. Come on in here. But the truth is that those things are good. And I'm totally telling you it's good to give money to the church, right? Right, Mike, right? Good to give money to the church. But those things are secondary things to knowing and loving God. Those things are what comes out of us because we have this relationship with Christ. It's not the things that we do to get a relationship with Christ. Y'all get that? Isaiah 57, 12 says this, I will expose your righteousness and your works, and they will not benefit you. Most of society would tell you that, that being a Christian is, is a list of things you can't do, Right? Well, I'm a Christian. I can't go do this. I can't do this. I, gotta, I can't do this. When really, being a Christian is things you do. You do what Jesus did. You follow Jesus. You love like Jesus. You care about the things that Jesus cared about. And I've heard people say, you know, it, well, if, God's, if God judges people, if God judges sin, then I don't want anything to do with them. And I don't understand, I don't understand that. Because if God judges sin and he's righteous and right, then I want everything to do with him. Because I'm a sinner. And I need him. I don't get a win by saying, okay, well then you judge, I'm not going to be a part of you. Right? I need to be a part of him. Because I can't make myself clean enough. I can't do enough to fix myself, to fix the brokenness in my heart, to be right with Jesus. And praise God for that. That's by Christ's blood that I have the option, the ability to be with him. Because I'd be totally lost without him. We are born into the world sinful. If you don't believe it, go watch my three-year-old. About two o'clock when we come home from church, she has had her nap. I mean, sinful, selfish, just sweet as can be, but just, oh, Jesus, help that baby. <laughs> we are sinful people who need God. And God wants to come into our life and change us and make us new, but we can't do it on our own. If you struggle with addiction, you can think, I can fix myself if I just fix this. And you might. You might stop the addiction, but guess what? You're going to get addicted to something else. Only Christ can fix the brokenness in our heart. Titus 3, 3, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, my favorite verse in the whole Bible says this. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. 
He saved us outside of us. Point two, if you're taking notes today. Where is your treasure? A lot of people read this story, and I've heard pastors preach on it, and they just, man, they just pound rich people, don't they? <laughs> rich people get beat up in the Bible, and some of it's very justified. But really, the Bible doesn't say that being rich is a sin, right? It says the love of money is a sin. It says what you do with that is a sin. But you can build the kingdom of God. You can do a lot of really good things for God with money. But money wasn't the issue in the story, right? The issue in the story was that this money that this man had had become his idol. It had become a barrier between him and God. And idol is kind of a fun word. We don't really use it anymore. In fact, I was thinking about this today. We kind of use it in a, a very good way. Right? You watch like award ceremonies like, oh, man, Bono, he was just my idol. I just grew up loving Bono. He was my idol. I just worshipped him. And it was a good thing. Or maybe we think of when you hear the word idol, this is, I'm a total nerd. What I think of is Indiana Jones, when he walks up and he has that sandbag and he has the gold statue and he's like, yeah, that's an idol in my mind, right? A gold statue, right? But here's what, here's how an idol is defined. Any person, object, or activity that you give higher priority in your life than God. Any person, object, activity that you give higher priority in your life than God. That means that idols can be our home, our money, our job, our car, our sports, our sports team. Mm, Dallas Cowboys. Anything you give in your life that's higher priority. So in a really practical way, I just said Dallas Cowboys, I have known people who will not go to church if the Cowboys play at noon. Hey, I go to church, but Cowboys play at noon, so can't miss that, right? I'll come back to church after the Cowboys season's over. Anything we put in our life that's ahead of God is an idol. And that's what this guy did. That's, that's the problem with this. His money had become an idol. Look at, look at what it says here. At this, the man's face fell. He went, a sa- he went away sad because he had great wealth. Tim Keller put it like this, and I really like this. If our identity is found in our work rather than in Christ, then success will go to our head and failure will go to our hearts. If our identity is found in our work instead of Christ, success will go to our heads, failure to our hearts. And here's something that really stood out to me. And, I, and I've, I've encouraged guys in, my, in our small group to, when you read, to, to read to learn, right? Don't read to finish. When I was in high school, it was like, I got to read my Bible verse tonight. Read a Bible verse, close it. Okay, did my part, went to bed. But when you read the Bible, if, if you read to learn, even if it's just like, I'm going to read two verses and I'm going to dive into it and figure out what those meant, it changes things. So I'll be honest with you, I did that with this. Hadn't done this with a story. And something really cool jumped out at me. Here's what it says. You know, Jesus, when, he, when he's talking to the man, the first time he talks to him, he says, well, you know the commandments. He names off six commandments. Y'all remember that? What commandments does he say? He says, uh, let's see here. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't defraud. And honor your father and mother. Right? And he gives off six, um, six commandments. What's really cool is that in that time, those six commandments were called the second table of the law. And it's good. The second table of the law are things that you should do. 
It makes like the perfect neighbor, right? These are really good things that we should do as Christians. We should do these things. They're really good. But Jesus left off some commandments, didn't he? In fact, he left off one very important commandment. Remember what the first commandment is? Thou shalt have no other God before me. I love Jesus. He's setting this man up. He's setting him up. Y'all see that? He says, you know the commandments? He names off things that he knows the man's going to be like, oh, yep, done it, done it, done it, done it. Because he's trying to show the man, that's great, but that outside of me is nothing. If you do those things and you don't have the right heart, it means nothing. Jesus is playing chess with this man's heart. Because if he had just said, you know what? You don't honor the God because you love money more than God. Then what would that have done to that man? The story ends where he says he went away sad. But in the next verse, God says, in the next, the next little chapter of this, he says, what is impossible with God, what is possible with men is possible with God. And I've read commentaries where they said, they said, picture Jesus looking back over his shoulder, looking up at that rich man's house saying, yeah, it's really hard for rich men to, to get to heaven, but what's impossible with men is possible with God. It's like Jesus is saying, I've put seeds down in that man's heart and I'm expecting them to grow. Because he set him up this way. He, he gave him six things that, yeah, I can do those things. And he says, well, you're forgetting one. You're forgetting very, one very important one. Nothing else matters except Jesus. Nothing that we ever do will stack up in front of him. Matthew 6.21 says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This man's treasure was his money. It was his life. It was his comfort. And when he was faced with a choice of Jesus or my treasure, he couldn't give up the treasure. Point three today. Jesus calls us to more. Jesus calls you to more. In the book I mentioned before, The Beautiful Outlaw, John Eldridge, John Eldridge mentions this story, and he says this about it. Anytime and every time Jesus pulls the rug out from under us, he extends his hand to lift us up to a place of refuge. You can count on Jesus to tell you the truth in the best possible way for you to hear it. He talks about the story. He talks about how he sets this man up, and he's grabbing the rug, about to yank it out from underneath him. But he says he's doing this so that he can pick him back up and put him in a place where he can come to know God and know the real living God, not the one that says, do this, 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 and then you punch your ticket, right? I love that it says Jesus looked at the man and loved him because I'm that man. And it's not even like we read these stories and it's like, oh, well, you know, I don't have it. I don't have a whole lot of money, so that's not keeping me away from God. Or I don't have, I'm not, I'm not skipping out church for the Dallas Cowboys. I'm good. But we build up these idols in our hearts. It's kind of like that addiction I mentioned. If you don't have God as your number one, you will put something in there to worship. You will put something in his place to surrender to. And some of us, it's time. We just need more time. We need more time with God. We need more time with our family. That's our idol. It's our time. It's important to us. This is me. And I'm going to preach it myself for a second there. Or maybe we come home from work and we're beat up and we're tired and our kids run and they tackle us. You're just like, ah, just, 
I've had a day. Honey, can you please just deal with them? I don't want to. Right? God calls us to more. Our idols will get, will get in the way. God calls us to more. Jesus looks at this man. He had compassion. The man had climbed the ladder of success only to find that he had leaned it against the wrong house. And make no mistake, when we read that, Jesus isn't just trying to make an example of this guy. It's not like he's setting him up to go, all right, guys, look, rich men, right? Can't get to heaven. Don't have any money. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is trying to find a way to make this man understand his need for God and to bring him to know the Savior. That's absolutely what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I call you to more. I call you to something better than what you have. Because Jesus will never settle for anything less than the best. That's why he convicts us. That's why he makes us uncomfortable. And there have been times Mike and Joel and I will meet in the morning and we'll walk around and we'll pray. We'll walk around the school and we'll pray. And some mornings we pray that people get a little uncomfortable. Because we need God to just push on us a little bit. Because without that, if we get a little too comfortable, we're not moving in the right direction. Right? God calls us to more. He calls us to more. Charles Charles Spurgeon puts it like this. Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as 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 much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as much as when we learn about the emptiness of everything else. A life spent chasing Jesus is never a life that's wasted. Do you hear me? A life that's in pursuit of the cross, in pursuit of Christ, is what we've been called to. And God will push you for more. And he does it because he loves you. It's not because he has a standard. He's like, you have to live up to this. It's because he goes, Ryan, there's so much more for you than this. He pushes us because he loves us. He calls us to more, just like he did this man. And the last point today, final point this morning, don't wait. Look at Jesus' command in the, to the man in the story. Go and sell your house. He doesn't say, well, you know, when things get lined up and you can kind of get, he says, go and sell your house and then come and follow me. There's a sense of urgency in what he's saying. He's trying to stir the man into action because the world will try to lull us to sleep. A.W. Tozer um, wrote this. He says, the world is really good at keeping dying men from knowing that they are dying and keeping enemies of God from remembering that they are enemies. Right? We get lulled into this moment of, we have time. I have time. I got time. And you know that. You've heard that. If you haven't heard it, you might have said it. Right? I have time. And it's interesting. I think a lot of us get this idea that we have, like, one day we're going to be on our deathbed. One day when I'm laying in my deathbed, I'll give my life to Christ. But here's the fact. The truth of it is that most of us will never get to that point. That's a, that's a grace of God that some people get to lay in their bed and make decisions to follow him, right? Most of us, it comes for us in the night. And even if death doesn't, the Bible says that Jesus will come like a thief in the night. We don't know the hour or the day. He could come today, tomorrow, five minutes from now. We don't know when Christ is going to come. There is a sense of urgency. If there's ever a sense of urgency in anything, it's in following Christ. 
So I'm going <laughs> to, my wife's not in here, so I'm going to do a sermon illustration because she's not in here and she can't stop me. Um, <laughs> for the last like two months, she's been, she'll, so we, our house is, we have a split, split bedroom house, right? So our house, our bedroom and our bathroom's on one side of the house and my kids' bedrooms and their bathrooms on the other side of the house. And we have two little kids, a five-year-old and a three-year-old, so bedtime's a total just chaos every night at bedtime. It's kind of like a race to see. I always take Elijah. She always takes Ellie, who can get the one to sleep first, right? Normally, I'll get Elijah to sleep, and I'll go back to our room, and I'll be ironing clothes for tomorrow or something. And every time she comes in, every time for like the last three months, she'll come in, and she'll be like, hey, there is a roach in our kid's bathroom. I saw two of them in there. We need to go. We need to get sprayed. And every day for the past like two or three months, I go, oh, yep, yep, I'll do that. I'll get to that. I'll do it. And I never do, because I'm not that worried about it, right? Well, let me tell you what happened the other night. The other night, I went to, the, I went to lay Elijah down. This was like midnight, because he had woken up. And I was like, I'll choose a restroom over here, and I'll just come back and crash in the bed. And I'd take my phone out, and i flip the light on. i walk into our ba- in the kid's bathroom, and there are six little roaches, little ones running everywhere. And I was like, and suddenly, there was a sense of urgency. I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go get the spray right now at midnight, and I'm going to spray the entire bathroom. And I did. I didn't tell her that. I just said, oh, yeah, I sprayed it last night for you, so it's, it's good to go. But when we have motivation, when there's a, a reason for us to move, there's a sense of urgency. And that's what Christ is calling us to in this story. He's saying, go. The time is now. You can't, you can't wait. This is one of those things you can't just, I'm going to wait and see what happens. He's saying, now is the time. Go. Give yourself to me and see that I don't take care of you that you won't have life here and life after. Harry Ironside said this, Christ is a substitute for everything, but nothing is a substitute for Christ. Y'all get that? Christ is a substitute for everything. We have brokenness. We have problems with our spouse. We have parents that left us when we were kids, we have issues, Christ can step in and be that for you. Christ can be fullness for you. But he will never, ever have anything that's his place in our lives. Nothing can replace Christ. Part of my job um, at work is to mentor and train new people on our job. And so... uh, I went to meet, shout out to Braxton, because I'm about to mention you in the sermon, so hopefully you're watching the podcast. I went to meet this guy. Uh, I got, we have a, the way we do it, our work is they get hired, and they go through orientation. On the first day, the manager will go and meet them, take them to lunch. Our manager is out that week. He asked me to go and meet him, because I'd be training him. So I walk into the, to the orientation center, and I said, I'm, I'm looking for, for uh, Walter, for a Walter. And I said, okay, well, he'll be right here. And so I sit down, a few seconds later, this real big tall guy comes around the corner. He says, hey, are you Ryan? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I'm Braxton. And I said, I'm not looking for a Braxton, I'm looking for a Walter. And he goes, oh, well, that's my name, but I go by Braxton, it's my middle name. So I said, oh, okay, so you want me to call you Braxton? And he goes, well, it's whatever. And I was like, no, 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 no. You're about to go to a brand new team. So you get to decide right now what people are going to call you. 
Because if you roll into that new team and say, well, it, my name's Walter or Braxton, or, you're going to have everybody calling you different things. I was like, so right now, when it's just you and me here at lunch, you decide what you want people to call you, and I will go back and tell them I met Braxton for lunch. And I think when I was writing this sermon, that's what came to mind. Summer's, summer's ending. For us who are students, we're going back to school. For us that are teachers, we're going back to school. For us that are working, things are about to change. And we have this amazing opportunity to return with a different name to go back with the name of a child of God. And we can turn and we can come back and say, I met God, I know God, I'm different. Or we can go back, we can fall in the same habits, we can fall in the same routines, we can meet the same people and do the same things. But God has given us a chance to return the right way. And I don't know where you are today. I don't know if what I said spoke to you. I hope it did. But maybe you have things in your life that are taking the place of God. And if they're not taking the place of God, they're, you're building a wall that's going to separate you from God. And now is a time that we can knock it down. You can make a moment, you can take a choice right now to knock that wall over and be back where you should be with God before you go back. Because we all know once we start back in life, it gets tough to change, right? Once we start down one road, it's tough to turn. But God has given us a chance this morning to come back, to tear down the idols, to surrender to Him. Let me pray for you guys tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I... Uh, I'm thankful for who you are, God. I'm thankful for your personality, for your love for us. I'm thankful that you call us to more. I'm thankful that, that, that what I do in life matters to you. That what decisions I make and what I put in my life matters to you. And I'm really thankful that I have you because I can't earn your love. And I can't do anything to earn my salvation from you. So God, I pray that you would move on our hearts this morning, God. I pray that those of us who need to, to just start over, who just need to return back to you, who just need to tear down some things that we built up in our life that don't need to be there, that we know don't need to be there. God, I pray that you would move on our hearts, Father, and help us to have the courage to take the steps to take those things down. The courage to confess and confront those things that keep us from you. God, I pray that you help us to put right people in our lives that are going to speak into us and, and help us along this way to follow you. God, I'm thankful for you. God, I pray all these things in your name. Amen.